Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org. The date is Wednesday, May 23rd. And again, we welcome our dear friend Ira Fistel, and I hope you'll mention his book. I just got it on Bookshare and already am enjoying it. So, But tonight, he's got another topic, the causes of the Great Depression. And without further ado, let me turn the telephone over to Ira. Ira, welcome. Hi, Bob. Thank you very much. Well, the first thing I want to say is that word depression. Now, today we think of the depression as a extremely bad economic condition, right? right? But that's not the way they referred to it in 1933 uh, or 32. Hoover, when he was still in office before March of 1933, uh, was trying to raise people's spirits, and uh, as things kept getting worse between the uh, end of 1929, 1930, 31, into 32, he said, well, this isn't really a recession. A recession means going backwards. He said, we're not really in a recession. This is just a little minor depression. In other words, the two words have switched meanings. He called it a depression, meaning that it wasn't so serious. And, of course, when it turned out to be enormously serious, the worst economic crisis we've ever had, uh, then the word depression replaced recession as the worst kind of economic collapse, which is why today we talk about the big recession, but it's not a depression. <laughs> uh, it, it's fascinating how language can change. And in this case, uh, the words have really switched meaning. All right, first, the question about what caused the Great Depression of 1929 uh, and on in this country. Actually, it lasted from 1929 up to about 1936 or 37 when things were getting better. And then in 1937, there was a double dip. It got worse again. And we'll talk about that as we go on a little later tonight. So from 1937, uh, the economic conditions actually worsened until 1939 or, or 1940. And what really got the United States out of the, out of the Great Depression, beginning in 1940, was preparations for World War II. Uh, the economy began to pick up because... The United States began manufacturing huge amounts of uh, ammunitions, uh, munitions for England um, and for, of course, France until it fell in 1940. And then also uh, it began to build up our own economic uh, production, airplanes, ships, and whatever. And the service began to draft people. I think the draft began, if I'm not mistaken, in the spring of 1940. And that, of course, had an effect on the economy. In other words, the massive spending that began on a small scale in 1939 and 40 was what pulled the United States out of the Depression after uh, really about 10 nightmare years. Okay, why did it happen in the first place? There uh, is no one answer to this question. There is no single answer to what caused the Great Depression. Many things contributed to causing the Great Depression. One of them 
is not unique to this depression or this recession that we've been in or to any other. It's the cyclical nature of capitalist economics. If you go back to the history of the United States, you will find that for every approximately 20 to 25, 20 to 35 years, beginning way back in the early 19th century, we have had an economic slump. Whether you call it a panic, whether you call it a recession, whether you call it a depression, there has been a financial crisis each time. Uh, I can mention 1837, 1873, 1894, 1907, 1929, and then after World War II, uh, there was a minor one, and then the uh, one about, what was it, uh, 1990, the, the, the uh, big uh, tech boom crash. So in other words, these things happen as part of the uh, capitalist economic system. The reason of that is that it's very difficult for economies to keep a balance between supply and demand. And this is true of all economies, but it's true in the West and in the United States particularly because of our of the kind of economy we have. We do not have a uh, what would you call a planned economy. We have a lot of federal and state governmental planning, but ultimately what decides what something is worth is what they call the market. The great total uh, mass of buyers and sellers. And in a capitalist economy, the market is the biggest determinant of value. For example, uh, let's say uh, I invent uh, a widget, okay? And there's never been a widget like mine. And all of a sudden, this new product hits the, uh, the street, and everybody's got to buy a widget. Everybody wants them. Uh, the widget is going to make life easier. It's going to make life better for everybody. And it becomes a tremendous demand for widgets. Okay, what happens? People start building widget factories, and they employ widget makers. And uh, the sales force builds up to sell widgets. And there's a huge uh, you know, buying spree for widgets, which produces a great deal of money. What happens to the price of widgets? Well, the more widgets that are made and the more buyers there are for them, the price goes down. But what happens when everybody who wants a widget gets a widget? All right, a year or two to three, dollars, three years down the road, the widget business starts slowing down. And there are all these widget factories and all these widget makers, and they can't sell that many widgets. So what happens to the widget business? It experiences a down cycle. Uh, on a uh, broader base, this is what happens in capitalism. It's very difficult to maintain a balance between how much is produced and how much can be sold and how many and consumed. When you have too much money chasing too few goods, 
let's say there are not enough widgets for everybody who buys one, who wants to buy one. So what happens to the price of widgets? It goes up because people are outbidding each other to buy widgets. So too much money chasing too few goods produces a lot of extra money in the economy, and this tends to devalue each individual dollar. And that makes what we call inflation. Too much money relative to the amount of goods that can be bought with it. Right? And what happens if there are too many goods out on the market and people can't afford to buy them or enough people can't afford to buy them? What happens to the price of the goods? They go down. The prices of goods go down in attempt to get to sell more goods. But if nobody can afford what's being sold, or if not many people want what's being sold, you have a depression because the amount of money in circulation is too little to buy all the goods that are there to be sopped up. And maintaining the balance between how much is produced and how much can be sold is something that uh, we trust to the market and nobody has ever figured out a better way to do it. However, it does mean cycles in the economy. When the money supply relative to the supply of goods on sale, the relationship changes and becomes unbalanced. And that is what has happened characteristically throughout the economic history of the United States. Now, well, later we'll talk about some of the things that have been done to moderate these and balances that cause uh, recession and inflation and all the rest of these problems. But uh, I'm going to start by talking about uh, what happened in 1929 and following, and then come back later to uh, what we can do to prevent this kind of thing. So the cyclical nature of capitalism, which is the bane of the capitalist system, is one of the probable factors involved in the 1929 depression as it is in every business recession and every business boom for that matter now sometimes the cause of a uh, recession can be as a result of a man-made or natural disaster now you don't think of that very often but think about 1837 in 1837, shortly before that, there was a great fire in New York City, and it destroyed a great deal of property, and it resulted in economic stress, you know, the cost of replacement, whatever. And the fire of 1837, or just before 1837, probably had an effect on bringing on that recession. The one in 1873, we can certainly partly attribute to the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Uh, in October, October 8, 1871, 17,500 buildings were burned, the, the, most of the city. The losses were astronomical in terms of money at that time. It bankrupted insurance company after insurance company because, of course, they had to pay out and they didn't have the money to pay. And that meant they had to borrow money. And that put a strain on, this, on the economy because all of a sudden people are borrowing more money than is available. And what happens when you have more demand than you have supply? Uh, you know, or in this case, more 
demand for money than supply, well, you have an imbalance. And by 1873, about a year and a half after the Great Fire of Chicago, the economy hit a severe slump, the most severe one up until that time. Ironically also, the bigger the success you have, the bigger the failure that follows. Uh, it, all, it does make sense, actually, but uh, it seems ironic that the more success, successful the economy becomes, the more vulnerable it becomes to a slowdown. Another thing that may change the balance between, um, between uh, product and, and money is uh, money supply. Now, when the United States was on the gold standard, which it was until 1933, the dollar was backed by gold. And there are a few crazies who still think it ought to be. But look what happens in the case of, the, of uh, the gold standard. In the late 19th century, the economy was growing rapidly, but there wasn't enough money in circulation to support the growth. Therefore, a lot of money had to be borrowed abroad, and debt ran up. And with the shortage of money to finance the growth of the economy, the growth was stunted. Until 1893, there was an almost serious collapse in the economy. But what rescued the economy was two things. Huge gold deposits were discovered in Colorado, Cripple Creek, and in Alaska. That's the second place, the Klondike uh, discoveries. And all of a sudden, the supply of gold was greatly increased, which meant that the money supply was increased. And the country worked its way out of the depressions of 1893 within a few years, a couple of two or three years, because all of a sudden the money was there. More gold meant more currency in, in circulation. When you restrict the money supply artificially, you're in danger of making the economy slow down because there's not enough money to finance it. At the same time, when money is cheapened, to the point where uh, it's not worth very much, you get the opposite reaction. You get what happened in Germany in 1920, well, 1921, 20, 20, 1921, when the German mark lost practically all of its value. Um, people would get paid in the morning and run out to spend their paychecks before prices went up and they weren't worth anything in the afternoon. It was that serious. So the money supply, what Milton Friedman, one of our great economists, called M1, is another great factor in the economy. And when the money supply is out of balance with the growth of the economy, you have another problem, another reason why you get uh, financial crises. So uh, another, another kind of thing can happen. Let's supposing that you have a great expansion in the economy or one segment or two segments of the economy for what might be called technical reasons. Production goes up because there's more equipment, uh, new inventions and whatever, to make uh, more land, for example, uh, produce wheat uh, or more factories, build more things. 
And all of a sudden, there's an expansion, a rapid expansion of the goods supply. Well, what happens when there are too many goods and not enough money? You get a recession. Uh, another thing, the changes in population growth. A quick, rapid increase in the population growth means a rapid increase in the demand for goods and services. Well, you meet that demand, but what happens then if the population growth slows down? Then you have too many goods and not enough money again. It all comes down to maintaining that precarious balance between what you can produce and what you can sell and consume. Well, that's a background, largely, of capitalist economics. What happened specifically that led to the recession in 19, or the depression in 1929? I used Hoover's term uh, the way he used it. He called it a depression because it wasn't serious. <laughs> well, he called it a, a re, what would really have been serious would have been a recession. And he said, well, this isn't a recession. It's only a little depression. Okay. Specifically, 1929, the roots of the Great Depression go back at least in part and maybe in a large measure to World War I and its aftermath. World War I broke out in Europe in 1914, and the United States didn't get into the war until 1917. It ended in November of 1918 with an armistice followed by a peace treaty, uh, the, Versailles, uh, the Versailles Peace Treaty, in 1919. What does all this have to do with the recession in the United States in 1929? It has a great deal to do with it. Yeah. Because the first thing you have to realize, in the 20th century, the economies of various nations on various continents are so closely interrelated that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can be affected by something that happens somewhere else in the world. And that's what happened in World War I. As you know, uh, World War I was fought first between Germany and Austria on one side, Britain, France, and Russia on the other side. By the middle of 1917, rather, Russia was out of the war, but the United States came in in April 1917 on the side of Britain and France. And I won't go into all the reasons why the United States abandoned its traditional neutrality. Um, there were a number of them. One of them was the, Bar the Zimmerman telegram. Uh, if you want to read about that, read Barbara, T Barbara Tuckman's marvelous books. Uh, the Guns of August and the, the Zimmerman Telegraph. Uh, wonderful, wonderful popular historian, and she makes things just come to life. Anyway, the United States did enter the war in 1917. But even before the United States entered the war, the United States was being the great arsenal that um, sold arms, theoretically equally available to both sides. But in practice, because Britain had the Navy and the ships, and Germany was landlocked and didn't have great Navy and great ships, the German Navy was built to challenge the British, but uh, only succeeded in uh, getting one great battle, one great surface battle, and then uh, more or less was bottled up for the rest of the war. 
the Germans relied on the submarines to uh, sink British shipping and keep the British from importing enormous amounts of munitions and goods and food and everything else from North America. So what was going on in Europe was destructive war between the great powers, very expensive, very costly in goods and services. And the British were able, because of their position as a naval and a commercial power, to take advantage of the arsenal across the Atlantic in the United States to a much greater degree than Germany was. France uh, also did, of course, to a lesser degree than Britain. But the British and French kept their war effort going with by spending money in America to import things that they were short of themselves, including munitions. And then also... Um, that transferred a great deal of wealth to the United States and stimulated the American economy. Until the United States got into the war, we were the great, what would you say, the great profiteer, because the British and French were living off of uh, what they couldn't buy in America. And Britain was the wealthiest country in the world until then. Uh, it never again retained the same status. But... World War One, in other words, was a boon to the economy of the United States, even before the United States got into the war. After the war ended, however, all of a sudden, the great powers of Europe were broke. And they owed enormous sums to the United States instead of uh, buying enormous sums from the United States. They couldn't buy that much. They didn't have the money. Also, Demand went down, because if you don't have millions of men in the army to feed, uh, those people go back to the land, and maybe they feed themselves, and maybe they starve, or they get very poor, but you're not buying huge amounts of grain from abroad to feed them. And if you were a very close observer of the American economy, you notice that as early as 1921, the price of food, agriculture prices began going down and went down steadily from 1921 on. The farmers were the first to feel the, the uh, pinch that was coming to everybody else. Also, the United States was one of the last countries in the world to get the impact of what happened in World War I full out. The actual beginnings of the Depression hit in Germany as early as 1919-2021 in the form of that massive inflation that I talked about a little, by, a little while ago. Because the, at the Versailles Peace Treaty, Britain and France imposed a war guilt clause saying Germany caused this war and Germany is going to have to pay for it. And they imposed reparations, payments, that Germany was supposed to make to Britain and France to pay their costs for fighting the war. This had to be one of the stupidest things that could possibly have been done. Because, of course, Germany couldn't pay those reparations. It drove the German economy into absolute panic. When the British and French couldn't collect, however, from Germany, which became clear that they couldn't, 
they couldn't pay their debts to the United States. So there was a world economic crisis brewing beginning as early as 1920 or 21. You know, the first country to feel the uh, full burden of the Depression? Japan in 1921. That's when the fascist government took over in Japan. Japan was the first country to feel the worldwide impact. It wasn't long until Britain did. About 1924, the British economy had a collapse, followed in 1925 by a general strike, working people all over Britain. And the British economy, uh, between the wars, was not in healthy shape. Uh, In fact, it was in very unhealthy shape. So, in other words, this was not a local depression in Europe or in Asia. It was a worldwide depression. It didn't hit the United States as early because the United States had not had devastation during the war, had uh, pulled in all that money from Europe during the war years, and the American economy was more stable than those in the war-torn areas in Europe. And in Britain and France, uh, France had a great deal of war damage. Britain had less damage but also had a huge loss in, in uh, soldiers. Uh, millions, millions were lost in World War One, And Britain never really recovered from World War One. All right, so that's what starts happening, a worldwide recession. It was recession. It was first noticed in the United States in the agricultural section. Agricultural prices began falling and kept on falling. Another thing, yeah. in America... Industrial production in the 20s was at a high. It was increased greatly during World War I in order to supply the demand from Europe for munitions and for uh, construction materials and everything else you could believe, anything else you could buy here. So the American industrial economy increased, and we mentioned inventions earlier. Inventions had a great deal to do with that. One of the... Key, uh, key inventions, for example, was the airplane. The airplane was invented in 1903, but really became important commercially after World War One, when the development of air power was accelerated during the war. And after the war, you began to get things like airlines and flying mail and things like that. And that meant demand for building airplanes. Another one, electricity. Now, Thomas Edison had demonstrated the electric light bulb successfully in 1876, but beginning around 1890 or 95, the electric industry really began to pick up as more and more uses were found for electricity. It turned out to be a lot more flexible, cheaper to use, and clean, and it was used for machinery to make machinery go, houses were lit, hotels were lit up with lights, huge demand for electric power. And the electric power industry grew rapidly after World War One. you know, especially those first uh, 10 years or so after World War One. So that's the second big one. And then, of course, perhaps the biggest of all, the automobile. The automobile was invented in Germany, of all places, of course. About, I think 1889 was something like the Daimler's first vehicle. The first successful American auto builders were around 1900. But beginning in 1914, 
Henry Ford, who may have been a strange and kind of despicable person in some ways, was a genius with his hands, and he had some very good ideas, surprisingly. You don't think of it in that way. Uh, he was a totally uneducated person. But Ford realized that if he kept the wages of his workers high enough, they would buy his cars. And Ford was the man who developed the production line, the mass production of automobiles to bring the cost of the automobile down while raising the uh, wages of his workers. And as a result, the automobile, which started out as a toy for the very rich, became by the first years after World War I uh, absolutely explosive business as thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people began to buy automobiles. And, of course, Ford wasn't the only beneficiary. His rival company, General Motors, uh, started about that time, consolidation of other companies. Um, and the, the business of building automobiles was huge, and it was growing by leaps and bounds. So there are reasons for the rapid expansion of the American economy after World War One. at the same time that the specter of the dropping agricultural prices was looming and the uh, economic crises abroad were looming. So if you were an American observer of the economic scene, you could forecast that things were not going to go on uh, in, in perfectly forever. Unfortunately, there was a great deal of, what would you say, uh, Pollyannaism, over-optimism. People thought, ah, well, we've got it now. Uh, we'll never have poverty again. We'll never have uh, uh, any kind of problems. The technology will continue to uh, support us, and it's the answer to all the problems in the world. That kind of thinking actually goes back to the late 19th century, uh, and it was worldwide, but particularly in Europe and the United States. Uh, World War I was a terrible, terrible and temporary shock to that, but people overlooked it, in the United States especially, because the United States hadn't suffered materially in World War I, and was the, the one great power uh, that was economically stronger after the war, as well as politically, than it was before. Uh, the so-called American century really begins with 1919, uh, with the defeat of Germany and the exhaustion of Britain and France and the decline in power in Europe, economic power particularly. Uh, that's when the so-called American century really begins. Okay. We are now in a position where the economy appears to be booming, but there's some, there's some uh, underlying flaws that, that bear watching. Another one was the state of the, fi the uh, financial industry. During the 20s, there were, turned out to be a number of big scandals involving high finance. Perhaps the biggest, certainly one of the best known, was the Teapot Dome scandal. Teapot Dome was an oil field in Wyoming, and it was supposed to be kept for the use of the Navy, but uh, an oil man named Doheny and the Secretary of the Navy 
uh, got together with a, and there were a number of bribes to sell the oil leases at uh, Teapot Dome and Elk Hills and to, uh, for private private use. And uh, the result became a big scandal um, about 1923-1924. The President of the United States in the early 20s was Warren G. Harding, who had been a senator from Ohio, a small-town department store owner and newspaper editor. And Warren Harding was a, you know, not a, an educated man, not a, uh, a wise or uh, not a uh, very smart man. He took office because he was a compromise candidate. The two chief Republican candidates in 1920 knocked each other out. And in the original smoke-filled room in the Congress Hotel in Chicago in the convention of 1920, the Republican Party leaders decided to put Harding as a compromise candidate. Uh, and Harding was nominated. The Democratic Party at that time had a requirement that there be a two-thirds vote in the convention to choose a nominee. And nobody could get two-thirds for a record 104 ballots. And I'll bet you never even heard of the name of the guy who wound up with the nomination. His name was James Cox. <laughs> in the 1920 election, Cox ran against Harding. Uh, the only person who you might recognize in that bunch was the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic side, whose name was FDR, Franklin Roosevelt. But he was only running for vice president. Well, Harding won the election over Cox, and then when he got into office, uh, he didn't know what to do. <laughs> he was completely uh, untutored in uh, national affairs, didn't have much brain power, and he was uh, relied a lot on his friends and cronies who didn't do him any favors. Many of them were corrupt. And in the Harding administration, uh, there was a big increase in bribery and corruption in the financial sector especially. I mentioned Teapot Dome, but there are a lot of others. Harding went on a trip to Alaska in 1923, and on the way home, he stopped in San Francisco and mysteriously died. It has never been clear as to what happened to Warren G. Harding. One theory is that he just died a natural death. But his widow, Florence Harding, refused to allow an autopsy. She wouldn't allow anybody to do an autopsy on the president's body, which raised lots of suspicion. What did she know? Well, she did know one thing, that Harding was not a faithful husband. He had a mistress named Nan Britton, among probably seven or eight others. And one suspicion is that Florence Harding poisoned the president. Well, maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Maybe somebody else did to get him out of the way because, uh, you know, he knew too much about too many people and doing too many crooked things. At any rate, Harding's death in 1923 didn't make for, uh, shall we say, confidence. He was succeeded in office by Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge was another character. He had been the police commissioner of Boston at the time the Boston police force went on strike. And he made his national name by saying, there's no right to strike against the public interest anytime, anywhere. 
and he got elected governor of Massachusetts. And then in 1920, he was the vice presidential candidate on the Republican ticket. And when Harding died, however mysteriously, Coolidge became president of the United States. His slogan, the slogan that he ran on was, Keep Cool with Coolidge, and he won in 1924. Um, but Calvin Coolidge was not a dynamic personality. He slept 10 hours a night and took naps during the day. Basically, he slept his term of office away. <laughs> when Dorothy Parker, the wit, you know, the, uh, the witty woman, heard that Coolidge had died, she said, how can they tell? Oh, yeah. She also said, he looks as if he was weaned on a dill pickle, because Coolidge never smiled. He was a dry, um, un unworldly character. <laughs> and he was the leader of the United States, and uh, he summed up the 20s by saying, the business of the United States is business. Well, untrammeled business can uh, produce some, uh, shall we say, less than good results. And you had a huge run-up in stocks. What financed that huge run-up in stocks? People borrowed money to enter the stock market. They borrowed from their brokers, and they bought a stock. Well, that's great as long as the stock keeps going up. Uh, you buy the stock at 100, and you're paying, uh, let's say, uh, you borrowed 80% of the money. You put down $20. The uh, borrowed money is $80, and the stock goes for 100 and it goes up to 150 and you make some money. All right. But what happens if the stock stops going up and starts going down? And let's say it goes down more than $20. Let's say it goes down from 100 to 75 Then your broker calls you up and says, uh, I need to have that money that uh, you borrowed from me. I need to have some of it back. You've got to pay me $5 immediately. The stock goes down to 30 You owe me $50 today, right now. I've got to have it today. Well, that is what happened in 1929. The huge market buildup was financed on borrowed money, largely. And uh, there was no uh, restriction on how much margin you could have, you know, uh, how much you could borrow. So we're leading up to 1929, slowly but surely. Then another thing happened in the late 1920s. Foreign business uh, was still a factor, nowhere near what it was during the war. But the economic gurus of the time figured that the only thing that they needed to do was to raise the tariff again. Raising tariffs had been a, what would you say, a watchword of the Republican Party ever since it was founded. The Republican Party was founded largely by business interests, and they wanted high tariffs to protect American businessmen from competition from abroad. And in 1930, after the market had already crashed, but uh, before the economy really showed the struggle, the sides of struggle, the Republican Party, over Hoover's objections, Hoover was elected in 1928, and Hoover was an engineer who had a great deal of experience in some financial markets, and he didn't really like the idea of raising the tariff. He knew that it was, it was a dangerous thing to do, but his party overruled him, passed it, and stuck it on his desk, and re reluctantly he signed it in 1930. It was the highest tariff we've ever had in American history. 
and it was called the Smoot Hawley Tariff. Isn't it wonderful how strange things like this get strange names? Senator Smoot <laughs> couldn't make him up, you know. Uh, Smoot Hawley Tariff basically was a declaration of war economically. It said that you can't compete with us, and we don't care. You're not going to be able to uh, buy any of our goods, uh, you know, because we are going to uh, set up high, t- high tariff barriers on everything. Well, that made the economic slump that they had already begun much worse by cutting off so much foreign trade. All right, getting back to 1929. Um, even before 1929, there was a slowdown in the manufacturing area. Not a big slowdown, but somewhat of a slowdown. Again, for the same reasons. The increase of demand during World War I also meant that more land was put into uh, cultivation, more factories were built, more people were put to work. And as that demand eased in the late 20s, some of those factories couldn't make it any longer. Wages went down. Uh, some of the businesses went out of business. Some of them consolidated. And uh, you had a slowdown in economic activity even before 1929. There's a wonderful book, and not a new book, but a wonderful book called Only Yesterday and its follow-up since yesterday. Those are two books by Frederick Lewis Allen, one of the great American 20th century historians. And he points out what happened in the run-up to the Depression, when everybody thought everything was just great, and the, the, what would you say, the cracks were beginning to show. Somebody like Bernard Baruch, for example, who was a financial genius, and Wall Street, and was a advisor to something like six different presidents. Baruch made a fortune because he saw that the underpinnings of the economy were weakening, and he sold out at the highest prices, sold out his shares and stocks, whatever, at extremely high prices, and then after the collapse, he was worth all the money. Other people did the same thing. You can make huge money in an impression if you see it coming and you sell out at the right time. Most people were buying when Baruch was selling. And uh, does this sound familiar? Does this begin to sound familiar? Um, All right, we'll get more to that later. Come 1929, and Frederick Lewis Allen points out the date, September 3rd, 1929, which was the peak of the market before the crash. American telephone stock was $304 a share on September 3rd, 1929. General Electric was 396 U.S. Steel was 261 Radio Corporation of America was 101 New York Central, one of the biggest railroads, was 256 Okay, what happened? October 24th, Black Thursday, October 29th, Black Tuesday. The market crashed. On November 19th, just two months after the September high, AT&T had fallen from 304 to 197. General Electric plunged from $396 a share to 168. It lost two-thirds of its value in two months. 
General Motors value went from $72 a share to 36 Radio uh, RCA, $101 to $26. U.S. Steel fell from $261 a share to 150 And that was only the beginning. Now, remember that a lot of that money that was lost was lost on paper. But because it was borrowed money, the people who borrowed money to buy those shares at those hard, those huge prices had to come up with the money to make good their margin calls. Their uh, amount of money they borrowed had to go back to the brokers. And that is why people started jumping out windows, because they had no way of paying off that money. It started out as a Wall Street problem, and only wealthy people, or comparatively wealthy people, were uh, immediately affected. One of the big things that you have to understand about the 1929 to 1933 depression was that it didn't happen overnight. It didn't just strike when the market went down and crashed. It took three and a half years for the economy to hit bottom from the time of the market crash. During that time, things went steadily down. More and more people were out of work as more and more uh, pressure was put on the economy. People who had a great deal of money before the crash had to reduce their, uh, their spending. Uh, they fired the servants. Companies fired workers. And every time that happened, it made more uh, poor people and less business because people without money can't buy anything. And with the Smoot-Hawley tariff, they had shut off any kind of uh, income from abroad. So you're having a, a cascading effect. Things start getting worse quickly at the top, but then they spread throughout the economy, and nothing seemed to stop it. The agricultural economy had been going bad even earlier. Now people couldn't buy the manufactured goods that they had been buying. And the, the uh, ma manufacturing segment began to feel, you know, began to feel pressure. At the same time, when people don't have money to buy things, and they don't have jobs, they stop spending money. They stop buying cars, for example. People were buying so many cars, well, they couldn't buy cars anymore because they couldn't afford it. They couldn't ship things. People couldn't buy things, so uh, there was the, the whole business of shipping from one place to another goes downhill. And listen to what happened to those stocks by 1932, okay? In the three and a half years, from September 3rd, 1929, to early 1932, AT&T had been at 304, dropped to 197 and 29, was down to 70 in 1932, lost more than two-thirds of its value. General Electric took perhaps the greatest plunge of all time. GE was at 396 in September 1929. By 1932, you could buy GE stock for $8.50. Imagine that. It went from $396 a share to 8 How many people went bust over that? General Motors went from 72 to 7. New York Central from 256 to 8. Radio, RCA, from $101 a share to 2.5. U.S. Steel fell from 261 to $21 over three years. 
Now, you see why the recession of nineteen of uh, twenty twelve or twenty twenty oh eight to twenty twelve so much less stabilitating than the than the Great uh, Depression. So we've had a uh, slowdown, but it was only a depression, not really a recession, <laughs> to use Mr. Hoover's term. Uh, it was so terrible that with approximately a half the population that we now have, in America today we have 8% unemployment. You know unemployment, unemployment reached during the Depression? 40%, 4 out of 10 workers and sometimes even more were out of work. Now, there's another reason why this was so serious. Today, if you lose your job, you can get unemployment compensation for what now it is what something like 90 weeks i think uh unemployment compensation means you don't have all the money that you have when you were working but you have some money in your pocket you can buy food maybe you could even pay the rent with it uh maybe you can pay the rent and buy food but in other words you're not destitute you have some money and that money goes into the economy that's why cutting off unemployment benefits is the stupidest thing you can possibly do in a recession, because it's going to make the recession worse. And yet there are people who have argued that unemployment compensation benefits simply mean that people don't have to go to work, and they won't go to work if they don't have to. Nobody likes being on unemployment. It's not uh, not the easiest life in the world, but it's one of the biggest reasons why our Recession in uh, 2007, end of 2007, 2008, did not become worse because unemployment compensation meant that unemployed workers still have some money to spend. Same thing is true of the other greatest program the United States has ever adopted for the, the, for the country, and that is Social Security. The Social Security program directly benefits over 100 million Americans one way or another. Over a hundred million retirees on Social Security or people who are disabled and on Social Security can be reasonably sure that they will get a check every month. And that check will help keep them afloat. But it also helps keep the economy afloat because people will spend that money immediately. One of the most effective things you can do against a recession is to make sure that people have some money in their pockets. And Social Security was passed in 1935 partly for that exact reason. Not only does it benefit the people who get the checks, it benefits the whole economy by keeping some money in circulation. They didn't have that in 1929. As the economy began to worsen and people began to lose their jobs, it was a double whammy because people who lost their jobs couldn't pay to buy even food, they didn't have any money. And that meant that the recession immediately got worse. Every time somebody lost his job, it got worse for everybody else. So that's one of the reasons why the 1929 Depression was so dangerous and so, uh, 1929-1933, was so critical and so devastating because there were no safeguards against it. And once it started, it was a it, catac- it was a cataclysm. It one uh, one day was worse than the next. So it's not a, there's no one cause 
There are many causes. Let's take a look at what did people do when they were out of work and they had no place to go and no jobs. Well, a lot of them went riding around the country trying to find some place where there might be a job. This is uh, Frederick Lewis Allen quotes statistics from one railroad, the Missouri Pacific, in the center of the country. In 1929, their detectives spotted approximately 13,700 people riding freight trains. Two years later, they spotted 186,000. What did people do? They rode around looking for something, looking for anything. They became hobos. They became itinerants. Just anything to keep alive and to not have to uh, starve in their homes. Another factor. We mentioned the economy, why the economy got worse. One of the reasons it got worse was because of the financial sector in the 20s, which was full of corruption. I mentioned that earlier. And what happened was by the, uh, the slowdown in the business world affected some of these pyramiding companies, holding companies. One of the biggest and richest holding companies in America was Samuel Insel's uh, what was the name of it? Uh, I forget the name. Uh, utilities uh, in uh, the Midwest. He owned power companies. He owned uh, everything that went by that bought power. And Insel's holding companies were pyramided one on top of another. And if one of them crashed, it would bring down a lot of others. Well, in 1932, the Insel Empire crashed completely, and it was built on sand. And the, the the depression exposed the sand. There were hearings held by the Congress in the, into the banking world, and you think we had a problem in the banking world this uh, this recession? Yeah, we did. J.P. Morgan Chase just lost what was it? More than two billion dollars. They say it's escalating, and maybe four billion by the uh, actions of one trader in London. Four billion dollars. Well, the same kind of thing happened in the, in the 20s. The financial sector collapsed. It collapsed more completely than it did in uh, our, our time. In our time, thank goodness, we had a, a, a program that stabilized the banks and made it possible for money to continue in circulation. In 1932, in February 1932, banks all over the country began to close. And if you had money in the bank, there was no deposit insurance in those days. If you had money in a bank that closed, that was the end of your money. You lost every cent of it. That doesn't happen today. We have federal deposit insurance now. They didn't have it in 1932. And by 1932, March, the, uh, the inauguration was in March 1932. By inauguration date, every state in the country had closed banks and was declared a bank holiday to let people cool off a little bit, try to make some, uh, what would you say, some stability in the banking business. When FDR was first inaugurated, he uh, extended the already prevailing bank holiday. And uh, for, uh, what was it, four or five days, the banks in the United States were all closed. But they were closed before FDR even came to office. And without banks, there's no liquidity in the uh, in the economy at all. 
when the banking system stops and nobody can borrow money, nobody can save money, uh, when the banking system stops, you have a total breakdown in the country. And that is what happened by March 4th, 1932. So what was responsible for it? Many things. Many, many things in many places. The thing to remember is that it was a worldwide recession and depression, not just the United States. It took longer to hit the United States, but it hit, when it did hit, it hit extremely hard. Well, I've been talking for an hour. Have I, what have I said? <laughs> have I made sense? Anybody listening? Yeah, yeah this has been great. Um, are you opening up for questions? Yeah, I will. One of the things I wanted to point out in the course of this, and I did, but sort of hinted at it, and I'm going to hit it hard right now. This current economic recession that we have had is so similar to 1929 that if we had not had the built-in ways of fighting the recession, unemployment compensation, Social Security, bank deposit insurance, et cetera, et cetera. If we hadn't had those things, this would have been as bad as 1929, when 40% of the people were unemployed. Unemployment this time never reached more than 10% plus. Uh, Nothing like what what it was uh, in the economy of those years before. But the thing is, it was so similar. Uh, Corruption... Uh, in the, especially in the financial sector. This time it wasn't the stock market that collapsed, it was the housing market. And that's even worse because you're talking about people's homes. And people are still not out from under the housing market collapse. It's better, but it hasn't completely uh, gone away. And until the housing market catches up with, the, uh, you know, with all those subprime mortgages that were, uh, that were sold and uh, went broke, People where homes are not worth as much as they uh, got in mortgages. Until that stabilizes completely, we're still going to have a drag on the economy. But uh, the good thing is that the American economy is far healthier than it was in 1929, and we are not going to have anything like the Great Depression of 29. Things are getting better, but they're getting better sl- more slowly than we'd like to see them. However, you can't make uh, you can't turn something that was that much of a disaster around in a matter of weeks it doesn't happen okay now questions well i I guess it leads to the question should we we have bailed out the banking in the auto industry was that just a move a bold move by government there was absolutely no choice if you Uh let all the banks fail you would have had Lehman brothers times a hundred right and the economy would have collapsed the way it did in 1932 when all the banks were shut down right you had no choice Let's see if there's on the phone first who have any questions, please. Uh, yeah, this is Sherry. I had a question. Um, you mentioned that things really turned around at the beginning of World War II with the war manufacturing and That's right. sent a giant stimulus from that. Was there an upturn at all? Were things on the road to recovery prior to World War II, and would they have recovered had it not been for World War II? Well, we certainly wouldn't have recovered as fast. Um, you know, I mentioned that 1937 slump, and I think that we didn't talk about that. I have to do that. Uh, beginning with 1937, the administration cut back on some of the New Deal programs that it had uh, fostered. Uh, there was, you know, demand to uh, return to stability. Well, 
by not continuing the stimulus programs, uh, they sent the economy and it was into a recession again, a double dip, they call it. And 37, uh, it got worse. And that's the reason it got worse. Okay, so Margaret, good. Do, you have a, do you have a question? I don't hear her. All right, uh, Kurt, if we could go to the audience. I know probably Don Queen's got one out there. I really enjoyed this. Our, some people say we're having a double-dip recession like uh, we had uh, in 37. Is that, would you think that's the case? We would, but we are not having that. As you noticed, the other point of what? Do that what? over, Ira? No, there's a fear that we would? What? Repeat? No, we're not going to have a double dip. Uh, pretty clear we're not. Because if you look at the state of the manufacturing economy, it's, it's increasing. Uh, companies are making money, lots of money. Uh, the banks are making money. Uh, it's not, they're not threatened with a double dip now. Uh, what's slow to recover is the housing market and the unemployment figures. But the unemployment figures are, are getting better. It's gone down about 2% from the top. In other words, it's gone down 20% of what was lost, well, more than 20%, uh, probably, uh, what, what did we lose, 8 million jobs, they think they said? And yeah. we've gotten back something like 4 million of them. We're getting them Some back, Some of them yeah. will never come back. Some of those jobs will never come back. Could you comment on um, Herbert Hoover? But it was the most maligned oh, president. Yeah, yeah. Was it his attitude about conservatism that prevented him from acting in any manner? Although he did attempt to act, and he got overruled by the Congress. He okay. tried to, to. He did make some efforts to uh, to uh, make things better. He was limited by his own uh, code of you know, conduct of what should be. He couldn't see. He couldn't see through giving direct stimulus to people. But he did uh, come up with the Reconstruction Finance Company, which was yes, one of the did. most successful programs. And it did not start with Roosevelt. It started under Hoover. Right. Reconstruction Finance was a big, uh, a big factor in the, in the Depression economy. Uh, Hoover is, unfortunately, the fall guy. He was really a good man, and he attempted to do whatever he thought he could do. But his concept of what he could do was limited. And he also had a Congress that was not willing to go along with him. He was, you know, politically he was dead meat. And the Congress yeah. wasn't going to follow anything he said. Right. Okay, any other questions um, of our people? Sherry, any other question? Or are you okay? Um, this is Margaret. I have a question. Good, Margaret, oh, yeah. please. Um, Ira's a wonderful presentation. I just Absolutely. wanted to know whether, hello, the books, yes, the books that you mentioned. Yes, can can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, okay. Yes, I, it's a wonderful presentation. Um, I was just wondering if the two books that you mentioned, the um, only yesterday and since yesterday, um, are they um, fairly straightforward for the lay reader? You you don't have to. Oh yeah, you know, have a degree for, in economics they're written for the public. They were written uh -huh. for the public. They were not written as, uh, you know, business creases or something like that. Uh, okay. They were widely, widely popular, and you should be able to find them somewhere, even though they were written in 1940-something. Uh, I read uh, them in college. Excellent books. Frederick Lewis yeah. Allen, yes. Frederick Lewis Allen was a wonderful writer. Wonderful. He was such a good writer that you don't want to put the stuff down. That's right. <laughs> you just want to keep reading to the end. 
right? Uh, absolutely. I was as usual an outstanding presentation. I was on the edge of my chair all the way through this one. I really was. And we want to thank you so very much. And again, tell us about your book a little bit uh, if people want to get it, and I hope they oh, will. The book. Okay. Yes. The uh, situation with the book first is it is now available on Amazon. Right. And in another week or two, it should be available on Nook and Kindle in the you know the ebook version. Okay. Uh, and that's going to be very inexpensive. There's, it's something like four dollars, you know. So it's really, really going to be cheap. Now, as to a uh, sound edition, you know, uh, you and I have talked about that. Yes. And we are investigating a program that might do that, but it's not anywhere near ready to, to roll yet. But we're we're thinking about it. We're trying to do something. I thank you, and of course it's Ira Fistel, F-I-S-T-E-L-L. Ira Fistel's Mark Twain, Three Encounters. But right. if you do, you look up Ira Fistel in Bookshare or even on Amazon, and you'll find it. I got it on now Amazon. Let me let me go a little bit further. You want to talk about Please. the book? I'll tell you a little bit about the Please. book. It's in, uh, as I say, Three Encounters. The first encounter is Encounters with His Work. I think that Mark Twain was a far greater writer, a far greater uh, novelist than people in this country give him credit for. A lot of people here in this country think of him as a writer of children's books, and he was far, far beyond that. He was, uh, as a novelist, I think almost certainly the greatest American writer. There are a few things by other people that come up to that level but not like uh, Twain, who produced at least five great works. Uh, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is his greatest, of course. But people also do not understand, don't get his other greatest masterpiece, which was the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. People think of it as Bing Crosby, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that was a musical based on only the only a slight piece of the of the whole book. It's a difficult book to read. It's a, it's a scary book. It's cruel. It's heartless. But it's so in, incredibly powerful. Be, um, one of the reasons for that is that Mark Twain was, among other things, not only the greatest humorist we have ever produced and one of the greatest ironists we have ever produced, but without doubt, the greatest satirist America has ever produced. Satire is an art form. It's not just a term that gets, should get thrown around, as it usually does. Satire is a technique in which the satirist, the person writing or whatever, uh, attacks an idea, an institution, a person, something, but doesn't attack him directly. Uh, he attacks a straw man. <laughs> and then allows the reader or the listener to make that jump from seeing what the attack on the straw man is an attack on something else. And in other words, it involves the reader or the listener in the attack. And that's why it's so powerful when it works. The big problem with satire is, what if you don't get it? What if the reader doesn't get the connection? And that's what's happened with the Connecticut Yankee. Uh, the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court is not about... 6th century England. No. It's about 19th century America, the society in which Mark Twain lived. It's an attack on the institutions, the corruption, and the cupidity, 
and the short-sightedness of people in his own America. And I'll tell you one of the ways which you know this is true. There's several. Who was president of the United States in 1885 when Mark Twain began the book? And I'll bet you you don't know. Uh, Chester Arthur. Yeah, you know, because I told you. <laughs> <laughs> you had to squeal on me. Okay, you're right. Chester Arthur. King All right. Arthur. <laughs> king Arthur. He was called King of the Customs House before yeah. he became president. He was literally King Arthur. <laughs> and his this, the description of King Arthur in the book is a, a description of Chester Arthur. Yes. I mean, it's just amazing how subtle the man was. It's a tremendous, he's a tremendous writer. He foresaw, in 1885 to 89, when he was writing that book, he foresaw what would happen in the future if technology, which everybody hailed was the answer to everything, if technology was not accompanied by some improvement in morality and in, uh, in thinking about people. Because... He foresaw that technology would increase the number of corpses. Ultimately, that's what it would lead to. That's what happened. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. You know how many people were murdered in the first part of the 20th century? Nobody will ever know, but it's somewhere between 100 and 200 million people. Boy. And that's the first part of the sentence. That's just wow. the first part. The second wow. part of the book is a, a breather. Uh, I ran around the country to the places where Twain lived and worked and tried to get a feeling of how his environment at any particular time affected his writing. And it did. He was a very different writer in Nevada and California than he was later in life in New York and Connecticut and, and in Europe. So that's the second part. But the third part is the dynamite. And I mean it's really dynamite. I try to get into a side of his mind. Uh, everybody knows that in his last years, Samuel Clemens, uh, the alter ego of Mark Twain, the real man, became extremely pessimistic and even nihilistic. His final philosophy, as stated in uh, The Mysterious Stranger, is that nothing is real. There's no reality. We don't know anything. We, we, might, we are a dream. We're all a dream. And we have, there's no reality in existence. And there's no right or wrong. There's nothing. It's all a fantasy. Well, I mean, that's almost an impossible philosophy for anybody to accept. And yet yeah. he did. And the question is, why did he? And I think that the, the thing that was driving him was guilt. And the question was, what, he's, what is he guilty about? He gives some ideas of why he was guilty in the autobiography, except it turns out that those were things that he wasn't really guilty of. So what was he really guilty about? And that's what the last part of the book is. And I come up with some really disturbing ideas. But there's oh, boy, I'm looking forward to a great read. I'm just starting it. So I would thank you, thank you so very much and continued success with your book. Oh, and thank I hope you, everybody will buy it. Now, one and of these days we're going to do this again, right? We'll do it, sir. I'll be in touch. Okay. This is wonderful. It stretches my brain. Much. Thank you, Ira. Bye okay. now. Good night.